Welcome to the Hand Engraving Podcast, the world's greatest podcast dedicated to the art and artists of hand engraving. I'm your host, Wade Oliver Wilson, Master Engraver. friends this is episode six can you believe it six episodes already it's been uh fun it's been a lot of work i really hope that you're enjoying it what'd you think of our new theme song my friend engraver hand or his real name marius Mellaby, he put that together for us and uh really adds a, a touch of uh class to the show i think so thank you marius So today we're in conversation with world-famous engraver Jay Park. This is not not exactly the way I thought things would go. I've been intending on having two different kinds of shows, one of those shows being a biographical show and one type of show being a technical show where we go in, you know, on deep dives into technical issues and how-tos and, you know, things in the world of engraving. That's not what this turned into. Not that that's a bad thing. My biggest thing about this show is that I want it to be a conversation between two people. And it doesn't matter what your ideas are going into a conversation. You you know, sometimes you just have to get your ego out of the way and let the conversation go where it's going. And, buddy, I tell you what, this this conversation went. And it went and went. And uh, for the most part, I just stayed out of the way. And uh, maybe there's a few technical things that get covered in this, but mostly I would say it's more of a uh, philosophical treatise than anything else. I spoke to Jeff on a Sunday afternoon, and he had been out playing in the pool with his kids. And actually afterwards, I was planning on taking my kids to the pool too. And I'd just like to say how much I appreciate him taking time out of his day to stop and have a conversation with me. And uh, I'm glad that I get to share that conversation with you. And I just want to let you know what to expect. And I want you to just uh, take it for what it is. It's a conversation between two people. Jeff has never been anything but generous with me. I want to thank him for taking the time to be on the show. I enjoyed speaking to him very much. And I hope that you enjoy what you get to hear. The show itself is a little more free-ranging than it normally would be. And the order of things is reversed. I had considered going in and editing the show to be like all the others. But, you know, this is a young show and nothing is set in stone yet. And so I thought, I'll just present it to you the way it actually was. And so the questions are at the beginning of the show and the conversation is in the second segment of the show. And I think that's just fine. And as a matter of fact, if you listen to the things that Jeff says, I think you'll see that just uh, relaxing and letting the show be what it's going to be, I think that fits in with the theme of what he was saying. So without further ado, I present to you the question segment. Okay, here's your first question. Hey guys, long time listener, first time caller, big fan. Um, Mr. Park, what have been your biggest influences artistically outside of engraving? And uh, I'll take my question off the air. Thank you. Uh, That's that's a great question. Who was that, by the way? That was Kyle Montoya. Okay, Kyle. Well, I would say most of my influence would have come from growing up in the 80s. I mean, I would say with a mixture of music and uh, cinema and, and TV as well. I mean, growing up during that time period, I feel like was, you know, to me, I feel like the eighties growing up in, in that decade was uh, magical. And I'm sure everybody could probably say that about the certain generation they grew up in, but I really do feel like the, the eighties was magical. And so you know, growing up on movies like Star Wars and, uh, you know, listening to 80s music. I have 
three older brothers and an older sister. So I listened to everything from, you know, Judas Priest all the way down to Duran Duran and Depeche Mode. But I'd say probably music would be my largest influence. I mean, before I got into jewelry and into engraving, I wanted to play music. I mean, I was a guitar player. Uh, both my, bro- you know, I played music with my brothers, played in several bands. I played the piano. I have a drum set in my, my studio currently that I play. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. I, I got sidetracked with engraving. Um, other than that, I would say, you know, recently, um, with engraving, I did get into ornamental art, obviously, and have studied that more profoundly than anything else. Um, you know, I have to say that I'm not really influenced by, you know, any certain types of art or art history. I mean, I, some of it, I'm appeal appeals to me more than others, but I would say most of the stuff, uh, and even my early engraving and still even to this day now is probably based off a lot of imagery from the 80s. Uh, yeah, you know, the very first time that I took notice of your art, you had posted a, I believe it was a gar- guitar pick with uh, the Powell and Peralta skull on there. And I yeah, thought, the Ripper. I thought, yeah. oh my gosh, someone that at least is is working with the same background that I've got, you know, the someone with the iconography of my childhood. So the imagery that was most powerful to me growing up was always, for one, in the early 80s, we were heavily into skateboarding, and it was like you say, it was all the Pal Peralta imagery. It was all the artistry that was done by VCJ. I don't know his full name. He was the artist who did all the artwork for Pal Peralta. And so all of that, you know, the Ripper, the Sword and Skull, all of that stuff to me when we'd go to our local bike shop, which sold skateboards, they'd have all the skateboard decks there. And to me, that was an art gallery. That was an art. You know, I grew up in a small town in, in southern Utah. We didn't have any culture there. You know, there wasn't any museums. We didn't have any of that. Um, so to me, it was that was the imagery that was most powerful at the time. And then watching cartoons like He-Man, you know, you had Skeletor. He was like my favorite character in that cartoon. And, you know, just during that time period, there was a lot of imagery that probably influenced me more than anything. And even recently, I've called my style like classical 80s, meaning I've studied ornamental. I know how ornamental works and I use it, but I usually throw in basically childhood imagery that I grew up on. And it's just a combination of the two. So I, I, for a time, I was calling my work, you know, classic, like 80s classical. Do you remember um, the first time you saw the Rob Roscott board? Yeah, I have that one up in my studio. That, uh, on my that was the day that I think where I think the day I saw that board was when I my whole uh, artistic idea got formed. You know, this I said, if someone can make money doing that, surely I can make money doing art. Just and it, right. you know, it was such a powerful image. It was gross. It was awesome. The colors were great. Uh, yep. It's just, you know, I, I I pull that one out in particular. But all the Zorlac stuff from back then was really cool. And even the more mainstream, like the Tony Hawk boards, all that stuff, it definitely leaves an impression on a young man or woman. Yeah, and so it was all of that stuff that was probably most influential on me being a, you know, so-called artist. It certainly comes through. Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, I I think if you grew up in that time period, you definitely recognize it. And, you know, my stuff is more geared towards, you know, people our own age, you know, people who are now probably in our... Just starting to get some money. (laughs) or early 50s. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Are you ready for the second question? I sure am. All right, let's roll it. Good evening, Wade. First and foremost, I want to thank you for starting this podcast of hand engraving. It really is great, especially for us in the trade. So this podcast, of course, is something I've been wanting for quite some time. To the questions at hand now for Jeff. What is his take on the new worldwide interest of hand engraving? To me, it seems it has gotten very popular as of late which is, of course, a good thing. Also, his thoughts on the amazing work that is now coming out, such as his. I know that has a lot to do with the use of air assist tools along with microscopes, but I think it has more to do with social media platforms where we can share, inspire, and see others' works. Appreciate it. Respectfully, Paul Bass from SP Hand Engraving. 
So there you go. Uh, thanks all for the question. Um, so basically, you know, when I first got started, it's been 15 years now. I, you know, took my first class with Jason Marchiafava at New Approach School in 2008, August 2008. And at that time, you know, I didn't know anything about hand engraving. I was taking classes because I was a jeweler. Um, I'd been to New Approach several times and I'd taken their, you know, f uh, stone setting, advanced stone setting, wax carving, fabrication. The engraving class was the last class I took. And I had an interest in it, and I'd seen, you know, some work by Sam Alfano and Steve Lindsay, but it wasn't until I took that class that, like, things, you know, Jason had some stuff that he was working on, and I just never seen anything like it before, and it just kind of, like, you know, my whole uh, paradigm shifted. Something in my brain clicked. Things changed. But back then, it did. It It, it is. It was more, you know, and it was something that was very niche. Uh, it's still very niche, but it has become more and more popular over the years. And for me, it's been something that's fantastic because, for one, I've put all of my eggs into the engraving slash jewelry basket. And so I now need to fall back on that to make a living where now there's so much interest in it that I can, you know, I've built out a school. I have students coming in right right now, It's you know, every month until the end of the year. Uh, I'm busy as can be. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. And I think, like you said, the biggest reason is social media. I mean, you know, when I got into hand engraving, uh, the only way to sell your work was either locally or you could attend trade shows, which I never did, or word of mouth. You know, I, I remember participating on the engraving forums, whether it was iGraver or hand engraving, uh, dot com and basically you know it was it was very tricky I, I always had work but i wasn't paid very well for it um it wasn't until you know i was dating this girl back in 2015 i think that she said i should put my work on instagram i didn't know much about it she's actually the one that created my account for me and through there i just started posting pictures of my work and that's when things kind of blew up for me um, so I think there's uh, a number of factors involved. Uh, I, I definitely think social media without it, I mean, it'd still be, I don't know where we'd be, to be honest with you. It seems like it's been the best thing for the art community in general, because someone can see your work. If they like it, they can share it. I mean, I have a following, you know, that goes around the globe. You know, I have clients in Asia, I have clients in Russia, I have clients in Europe clients in the United States. And I think without social media, even though we tend to look at a lot of it with a negative eye, it's without it. I mean, I couldn't do anything. Um, but I, you know, it's just, it's an interesting time. And I just, I'm super grateful to be where I'm at. I'm super happy that I picked it up when I did. Like I say, it was very niche back in the day. Nope. Nobody really did it. Um, and now it seems to be exploding. You know, you seem to get a lot of interest from all over the place, especially, you know, it's been consistent with the jewelry industry, but now with the tattooing, uh, I get, you know, a lot of students that come from a tattooing background. Um, you know, that's, still, that's something I was thinking about earlier is I wish there was a chart I could look at to see how many of the people who are taking up engraving right now how many of them were actually influenced through your work on Instagram? And I, I would imagine that with, at least in the tattooing community, that that number has got to be in the high 90s, 90 percentile. I don't know. Uh, maybe not so much in the Western engraving, but I don't, you know, I don't know everything. Yeah. yeah I, and you, you know, I, I have no clue. I, I, you know, some, it's funny, you know, how I kind of see myself or see my work or, or, and then I have other people talk to me about how they see it. And it's like, really? It's like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's pretty wild. Cause I don't really, I never, you know, I don't see myself as being, you know, hyper influential or this or that. I've always just done what I've wanted to do. And it seems to have an appeal right. uh, with people, which I'm, you know, very, very grateful for. Um, but it is exploding. I think that even in the next 
10 or 15 years, it's still going to be very niche. I think people that get involved in it now and get up and running with it will can do well. If you can, if you can learn how to sell your work and learn how to basically, you know, um, push it. Yeah. Well, uh, these tattoo guys, the work out there. yeah, these tattoo guys coming up, uh, even, even ones that haven't been at it very long are turning out stuff that I can see that in the next year or two, it's, it's really going to be mind blowing. It's interesting to watch because the people that come from a jewelry background tend to be good with metals. They tend to be good with finishing. You know, they tend to have a lot of skills where, where that's concerned. And then the guys that come from the tattoo industry know how to create images. You know, absolutely. And so it's a different set of skills, but it's just as important. You know, sure. um, when people come blind, meaning they don't come from necessarily a a uh, jewelry background or an art background, they struggle, you know, uh, engraving is hard, <laughs> you know, yeah. well, you know. <laughs> I'm reminded of that every time I teach a beginner's class, because uh, I just, I always forget that it's very difficult. Absolutely. All right. Well, should we move on to the last question here? You betcha. All right. Let me cue it up. Hi, Wade. Uh, thanks again for a really great show, and I'm really glad you could use the music that I made for you. Anyway, I have a question for Mr. Jeff Park, if I may. I'm super fascinated about your, your work and, and artistry, and, but my question is, when, when do you stop? Um, I, I love working on small details that can't be seen by the naked eye, but if I have a uneven shading lines or some flaws that is never going to be able to, to be seen, but I I can't leave it like that. I have to fix it, uh, especially because they will be taking photographs of it as well. So what, what is a good engraving? When do you stop? Uh, when do you think it's good enough? Obviously, it's, it's, uh, your skills and practice and, and experience is obvious, but uh, do you have any, any thoughts about that? Okay, that was... Marius, also known as Engraver Hand, and that was his question. Uh, thanks for chiming in, Marius. I uh, appreciate it. Um, that is a, it's one of those things that's difficult because uh, I think that when we're doing hand engraving and we're working under a microscope, we tend obviously to get very, you know, I would say when it comes to engraving and jewelry work, I'm OCD to a degree. Now, I'm not OCD in my everyday life, but when it comes to working under a microscope um, and engraving, um, it's been very difficult for me basically uh, to stop and say, this is good enough, I need to move on. Um, especially in the beginning, my philosophy now is, uh, and this is what I teach my students, is get it done. Get that thing out the door, meaning don't think that every piece that you're going to be doing is your, you, you want to feel like every piece that you're doing is your magnum opus, or this is the piece that's going to change, you know, my career, or this is going to be the, the greatest thing I've ever done. I think it's far more important to get something done than to get it completely the way you'd like it. Um, I think that's a big crux or it's, it's a big problem with engravers who are perfectionists yet they can't make any money at engraving because they get hung up on stuff. And I think it's far more important to get things done. Uh, over time, you just tend to get faster and faster, and you get better and better, and you learn over time that I just have to leave this behind. It's not important enough to worry about because ultimately, for myself, speaking for myself, I've got you know, a mortgage payment, I got rent payment for my studio. I've got a wife. I've got two kids. Basically, even though I want to do my very, very best work, and I do, I do it extremely fast. I leave the stuff in the rearview mirror that I, you know, that I know nobody's going to notice, and the stuff that I can like let go. Uh, my ethics are high when it comes to engraving. I don't let a lot go. Um, I want it to be as clean as possible, but at the same time, it's got to get done. It's got to get out the door and I need to get paid for it. Uh, so there's got to be a combination of the two where you want to be as clean as you can be, but ultimately you've got to pump out work. Engravers need to do, you know, to get things done. You need to get paid for them and you need to be on to the next project. 
Have you ever looked at uh, some old old style hand engraving where they just leave entire parts of the design out and and they kind of leave it up to your imagination? You know, uh, say say the ends of a flower petal won't touch, but right. But instead of having two regular V cuts that meet like we would do today, they'll have one V cut and then they'll have one flare cut, and and it adds so much more. Uh, to the design, but you know that it was done because it was faster to do it that way. You know, these guys weren't, these guys weren't fooling around. They were getting these things done and out the door. Production. Yeah. Production for sure. That's, that's, it's something that I'm actually trying to get better at is, is to uh, put a little more art, uh, artistry into what I'm doing and and a little less of the uh, engineering part in, you know, that makes sense. You know, there's, I would say, you know, engraving as a whole is like a pie, right? And you need to have, I'd say, focusing too much on one piece of the pie or having too large of a piece of pie in the whole of engraving is not good. You need to have, you know, a lot of different things coming. You need to have a lot of different pieces of pie, and they need to, all need to be basically a decent size. Maybe that doesn't make any sense. But what, what I mean is there needs to be, at least for myself, this is just I'm speaking for myself, one of the pieces of pie is I need to make money. So I need to figure out that aspect of it. The, the second, which is probably the biggest piece of pie, is you know, artistically, what do I what do I want to do? Because a lot of times, and even now, more important than the check is basically creating something that I'm happy with, that resonates with people, um, that gets respect from my peers. Um, and so and, you know, engraving is, is an illusion, too. It's magic. And so I think that there has to be equal parts of all your needs are getting met with engraving, um, artistically, financially, um, and, and all the way around. Yeah. Um, I think that's the key. It's the thing that I'm working on most. I would say I, I spend too much time, I, I feel like, putting in a lot of detail and work that isn't necessarily vital to my clients or even people that see it. I mean, even a lot of my gold work, it's like if I post a video or something on Instagram, really, I mean, you see, you know, Instagram cuts that the quality, the video quality down about 50% probably Sure. Or you lose like so much of what I do. It just gets lost. You, you can't even see it. And so I'm like, why am I even putting that in there? Is it just, and I, I believe it's just for myself. Yeah. You know, I do it for myself because I don't even think my clients would even, I don't even know if it would matter to them. Yeah, not unless they're looking at through a microscope at it. That's something I yeah. chastise my, myself for all the time. It's it's foolish, but also, <laughs> so, someday someone's going to look at the full uh, the full high quality photograph I took and go, "Oh, I didn't know that was there." <laughs> you know? Well, and I think that's kind of the fun part of it as well. Is you know, I'd like my you know clients. Basic. Well, I have a philosophy about my work now, which wasn't the case years ago, but I'd like someone to view – okay, if someone was wearing my, my watch and if they're out and about, say, in a bar or somewhere, that if, if someone was, you know, maybe 15 feet away or so, they'd see that watch and be like, oh, that's interesting. Like, you know, I'm into watches. What the hell is that guy wearing, you know? It's, you know, shimmering this way or that, and it looks good from a distance. Now, if that person were to come up on – uh, the person wearing the watch, and to look at it closely, you know, they'd say, oh, wow, you know, oh, all the beautiful detail, la di da da But then again, you could probably take a loop to it and look at it, and even, you know, there's even more detail, which you wouldn't notice. So I kind of have, you know, a philosophy. I want it to look good from across the room. I want it to look good to the naked eye, and I also want it to look good under magnification. Holistic, that, holistic engraving. Right. So... Um, I, you know, I even forget what uh, the question was. <laughs> well, 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 let Mark. me tell you, you, he certainly got his money's worth out of that question. So, I don't, right. th- I don't <laughs> think it could be, I don't think it could be answered any better than that. Well, thank you to everyone who sent in questions for the show. I really liked the way it worked out. Uh, I didn't hear any complaints about. Uh, any technical difficulties from the people who took took the time to uh, send in their questions? I look forward to doing it this way in the in the future. 
They were all good questions. Thanks, everybody, for participating. Now, let's get on to the conversation. Oh, and I've been asking people what the favorite thing they've ever worked on was or what they're most proud of, and I've been asking people if they've ever worked on anything that was just a total failure. So we can get into that or we can skip it, but uh, that's actually the one thing I get the most feedback on is the failure part. So, oh, is that right? Yeah, that no one, no one has ever mentioned uh, anything about people. What people are most proud of, but everybody goes, "Oh my gosh, that's awesome to hear about." You know, where this big name guy totally blew it, or something just didn't work out. So that's up to you. I, if if it's not in there, it's not a big deal. Yeah, well, I'll answer that now. I mean, well, let's start with the, the my favorite thing that I've ever done. Well, I have to say that nothing. You know, my, my problem is I found that anytime I finish a project, I'm usually deflated to even if it's really, really nice. I'm usually let down to a degree. I have super high expectations when I'm working on it. And then when I finish it, I don't know what it is. I feel like a lot of the times I always compare, you know, my engraving to like, climbing mountains, even though I'm not a mountain climber and I don't know anything about climbing mountains. I just know that usually when I reach the summit, I don't spend a lot of time up there enjoying the view. Uh, you know, I kind of compare it to like climbers that, you know, climb like big mountains like Mount Everest. They don't stay at the top very long, right? One, because they'll die, you know, they have to come right back down. But I just tend to find that I find that the challenge and the joy, if there is any joy in it, uh, is in the climbing up the mountain. It's in the project itself. It's in the creative aspect. It's in the working out problems. It's um, being basically putting one foot in front of the other, climbing, and it's monotonous. It's tedious. It's boring. But that's kind of where I find myself. Uh, that's where I kind of live is in that area. And so I'll say with projects that I'm most proud of, I would say I, nothing really comes to mind because uh, I'm usually kind of over it by the time it's finished. But I've had numerous, pro well, most projects while I'm working on them, I, I tend to find myself. That's kind of where like you'd get, you know, as an engraver and someone that works by themselves, you tend to have a dialogue with yourself on a daily basis, right? And I think it's probably similar to people who climb mountains. They're not really talking to anybody next to them or, you know, jibber jabber. And they're probably by themselves while someone's, you know, 100 meters in front of them. Someone's probably 50 meters behind. And they're having a dialogue with themselves while they're doing something that's extremely difficult. Um, well, yeah. Especially, you know, <laughs> with the watch feel, people, people, you know, everybody wants to engrave Rolex watches or watches. And that's great. You know, I'm kudos to you. You know, it's wonderful. But the steel itself, the 904L, you know, oyster steel, as they call it, is extremely hard. It's gummy. It's hard on your tools. Oh, you know what I'm saying? It's hard and, and it becomes, it's hard and gummy. It's hard and gummy. That is that's the worst combination. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Wade. The first time I engraved one, I told myself um, that I would never do one again, and I hear that a lot from people. Um, and now it's, you know, probably seven years later and it's pretty much all I do, but I, I tend to find with myself, I like being in the thick of it, meaning I like to do things that are on the border of, can I even do this? Sure. Um, and I, I tend to push myself not knowing if I can, there's been times when I wouldn't say I've had ultimate failures when it comes to pieces because I, I you know, my job as a jeweler taught me you know like you, you don't you you fix it you don't do anything that you you know discard i mean you can't discard a rolex you know like <laughs> oh i messed it up i gotta yeah i'm just gonna throw it in the trash or it's like you have to like figure out a way to repair it and i like to tell students like mistakes are good because they force your brain they force those cogs and gears to start turning and for you to come up with some sort of solution. And I have to be grateful that my jewelry background, I worked as a repair jeweler for 15 years. That's what you do on a daily basis. Sometimes you have stuff that comes in and it's just busted and you have to figure out 
how to fix it. That's a different uh, approach than I've heard from anybody else so far, and that's that's very interesting to me. I think I think a lot of us engravers, or I know I do in particular, I get a little drunk on whatever I've just finished, and you know that that uh, the love affair ends after about two weeks. You know, you, you start seeing your work for what it really was at the time, and uh, I kind of wish, <laughs> I kind of wish I could get out of that mode. But that's why whenever I design for anybody, I'll design it on paper and then I'll hold off for two weeks, and and come back to it before I'll send it in, just so I make sure that I, you know, I wasn't just you know, on some weird trip when I made that. So it's interesting to hear that the different basically uh, ways we achieve what we do. And I would say that's probably the best route to go is to design on paper first and then ultimately find your flaws, fix them, and then, you know, uh, cut it at, at some point. You know, wait, I have to be honest, and a lot of people are kind of, I don't know about appalled about the way I go about things, but <laughs> no, I don't. No. Go ahead and go. This was one of the things I found most interesting about taking your class, so please, let them, let them have it. Yeah, I, I, I don't do renderings. I don't do drawings. Um, and if a client asks for those, I tell them no. Now... I'm fortunate, meaning people trust me. I'm at a level where I can get away with that. I used to do renderings. I mean, even though they weren't very good renderings in the beginning, and I tried. But what I've come to find is I'm most creative when I just start working on something. And even though I might have a general idea, don't get me wrong, you know, okay, so this client wants, so the watch I did recently, the client wanted, you know, basically, uh, Japanese style theme. He wanted kabuki masks on, you know, one on the, and then he wanted a dragon, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, but that's what he leaves me with, you know, and so the rest is up to me. So there's an idea there, there's a concept, but other than that, I don't know where I'm going with it. I just start basically, um, I just wing it, Wade. I, I don't know how else to put it. I'll just take whatever I start working on. And I'll just put all of my focus into it, and I'll just basically well, wing I'll, it. I'll tell you how I th how I thought about it when I first heard you showing us how you do it is that uh, it's like someone who leaps off something and is pretty sure they're going to land it, but they're not exactly you know sure how they're how they're going to pull it off. And uh, you're talented enough and skilled enough that by the time that uh, by the time you meet the ground, well, you're on your feet, and everything is great. I don't know if there's a better way to put it than that. You know, I, I just, I basically, I, I learned engraving correctly. I mean, my mentors, my teachers taught me, in my opinion, a very correct way of doing things. And my ornamental uh, work with that and the techniques just give me confidence to do certain things. Now, the confidence wasn't always there. I, you know, I had no idea what I was doing in the beginning, like like everybody else. But I would say that I, my obsession with engraving and the amount of time and energy that I put into it has trained me well enough to basically, like you say, jump off the top of the roof and you know, go flailing in the air. And land, you know, without breaking so, a leg. So, you know? Speaking of your confidence, that first, that very first time that you took on a Rolex and it shows up at your at your shop, what was that like? Uh, it was interesting. I mean, I, I remember it very, very well. I was still working as a repair jeweler, but I had my engraving tools at the shop. I also had a set of engraving tools at my house. Um, and I didn't know what I was getting into. You know, I, I said... You know, I will say this, Wade. The thing that I think I've done very, very well, that I, I've never, when, when an opportunity has come to me, I've said yes. Instead of saying, uh, I don't know, or, oh, I'm not ready for that, you know, I feel like you have to figure it out. I think if opportunities come your way, even if you feel ill-prepared, you still have to, like, try. You know, and you may fail. You gotta gotta have some because guts. They don't come. 
you got to have some guts. And, you know, people, you know, I've heard people call me the Rolex engraver and this and that and yada, yada, yada. And a lot of nice things are said by a lot of influential people in the industry towards me that's very, very nice. But if I would have said no to that, like, okay, I'm not familiar with engraving watches or I'm not familiar with, you know, Rolex, I don't think I'm ready for it. I don't think I would be where I'm at today because I think the opportunity would have gone to somebody else. Absolutely. And so the one thing that I did is I, did I know what I was doing? No, I didn't, but I didn't shy away from trying. And so I, and I, and I did my very, very best. I remember when I was cutting it, I was dating uh, my wife at the time. And I, I, me- I remember calling her and telling her, I said, I feel like I'm in a fist fight <laughs> with this watch. <laughs> and I don't know who's going to oh, win. Wow. Now, I think one of my greater qualities is I'm highly stubborn, you know. And with that, I'm not, I have a hard time just, I'll just hit my head against that stupid watch you know, until my brains are falling out just to get it done and to finish it. Um, And, you know, I think that, especially engraving, man, everybody wants to get into engraving. Everybody wants to learn. But like you, like, you know, Wade, it's difficult. And everybody that comes up and, you know, says they want to do it, 99% of them kind of fall by the wayside because they learn at some point that it's difficult. Absolutely. And expensive. Um, and I think that one of maybe my greater qualities is I'm just stubborn. <laughs> I just, I won't, I won't quit. You know, I just like, I'll just hit my head against something repeatedly until, you know, it's either knocks me out or the piece gets well, completed. I think, so you've, I think you just it, have some trust very, in yourself, which is, you know, a lot of people haven't well, been through enough stuff to develop that trust yet. Maybe. Yeah, I, yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I'm not I'm not necessarily sure. I would say that I do have a pretty decent work ethic, and so I tend to put in a lot of hours. You know, and always have. Um, and it, it was interesting. I remember, you know, the first one I did, and then I did so. You know, and I my the people that I did them for, they were very very happy. You know, and that made me feel I didn't make any money. I think I charged. The first client I had paid me three grand to do a Rolex, and I think it took me a, over oh a month to do it. You know, I know there was no money being being made, but you know, you have to look at things as as yeah, opportunities. That's, a, that's almost right? an internship there. It's exactly what it is, and so I was paying my dues at the time, and luckily I was in a place in life where I didn't have any kids. I didn't really have, um, you know, a lot of expenses. And so I was able to do that. And so now when I see people coming into engraving and they've, you know, got families, they've got bills, they don't have a lot of time. I'm like, Ugh, <laughs> that's rough because there is going to be a large amount of time that you're going to have to invest in this before you see any type Absolutely. of return. Uh, so one thing that um, I've always wondered about your Rolexes is uh, I know that Rolex is very particular about uh, what they will uh, allow to be done to their watches as far as, you know, once once something has been repaired by a non-Rolex uh, facility, then, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with that watch anymore. Is it the same way for when they're engraved? Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm. well, yeah you, you void your warranty. I mean, you don't get any help with Rolex after oh, that. That's no big deal. I just, I remember... Uh, Back when I was starting engraving in like 2012, uh, I remember a lot of people were talking about how Zippo was telling them to quit engraving their their lighters, and you know that's a twenty dollar lighter. So I was just wondering, I was wondering yeah. if it stepped up from there with Rolex, if there was ever any, hey, quit doing this or else. Well, I I don't I don't know, and it's interesting to me. I think we walk a fine line but being one an american and two someone that grew up on punk rock (laughs) and it's just straight rebellion it's like the worst thing that you could tell me you don't tell me not to do something i'll that's that's the first thing that i'm gonna do you know and i i look at it 
and because my clients know, I know, everybody's well informed when they're having work by me done on their watch or, you know, that first of all, if I'm doing a commission for somebody, Rolex doesn't have, they, they can void their warranty. They don't have to go and, you know, uh, basically do anything that voids the warranty. That's up to them. That's fine. But when it comes to the watch itself, it's like that watch is, if I give Rolex $15,000 for a watch, I don't get to tell Rolex what to do with that $15,000. You know, so how can they tell me what to do with their watch? You're exactly right about that. Uh, And I think Zippo is the same way. It's like, what what do you tell, what do you mean? Someone, if someone pays you for the Zippo, then you're going to tell them what they can do with it and can't do with it. It, it actually is that I don't think they have the right to do that. No, they have the right to void their warranty. So does Zippo, but they can't tell you what to do. It's like, I don't have it. I can't tell you what to do with the 20 bucks that, you know, I gave to Zippo. Right. It's like, it's an exchange. I, I don't understand that principle. I thought Zippo was completely out of line for the things that they were saying. But you remember that. Okay. Yeah, well, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I never got into engraving Zippos. I, I've never done one, so I never had to deal with that. But Rolex is just probably like the bigger brother, <laughs> you know, of Zippo. Rolex has never said anything yep. to me, you know. I but I'm not. I don't sell Rolex watches. I don't buy them and resell and cut them and resell them. Most everything that I do is based on commissions. Um, so it's not even my watch per se. It's a client's, and I think the client can do with whatever they want with their own property. I don't think anybody has any business telling them what they can and can't do. You know, obviously say we would no longer, you know, we're not going to replace that part. You know, this voids the warranty. Hey, that's fine. Um, But, you know, anybody, any watchmaker can work on a Rolex. It's not like a Rolex is some, you know, spaceship made by an alien that humans can't work on. It's like, they're very simple in a lot of ways. I mean, they're high-quality products, but it's not like you have to be a licensed Rolex repair person to repair a right. Rolex. Now, getting parts, that's a different story. If you need a part, okay, that's a different story. But to actually service them and whatnot, I mean, they're very, very simple timepieces. And they're built like tanks. You know, they don't really need oh, okay. anything. You know, you just make sure you treat them properly and... They just work. I think a lot know? of people will be interested to hear all that because that's not a, that is not a uh, perspective that most people have thought of before or, or have known. So uh, one of the things that I really like about your work is the custom pieces that you make and uh, specifically the cassette tapes that you've made and uh, that Cobra Commander pendant was really cool. Uh where do you get your ideas for these things? I think it all comes stems back from my my childhood growing up in the 80s. You know, I, the cassettes, I mean obviously that's a dead technology. Some people, you know, the younger generation like my nieces and stuff, they wouldn't they don't even know what those are. <laughs> you know, I mean and then if you get the generation, you know, above me and above you, you know, that back then it was, you know, records or vinyl and you know so it's it's you have basically a 10 or 15 year gap of people who grew up on cassette yeah. tapes and it, you know it's it's and, a really know, ugly shape when you think about it it is it's it's nothing special it's boring but to me it's like okay if you could tra- if i could go back and during that time period you know middle school and high school and, and whatnot even though cds transitioned during that time even when I was in middle school, that, you know, what what were the things that, that were magical, you know, for me growing up? I mean, those, my cassettes, my mixtapes, stuff like that, those were pieces of magic. Put my headphones on, push play, and I'll transcend, you know, into some other universe. And that was magical. It's a talisman of another time? It's exactly what yeah. it is. And it's, it's interesting that some people will say, why would you do those? But then again, you have some people that would say that's probably the most, I mean, I've had serious impact on people with the cassettes that like, you know, it's like, that's like the most impact, most emotionally potent piece of jewelry I've I ever seen. I think you're right. It resonates with me more than, you know, 
and I'd like to make a lot of them, but they're you know time consuming to make. Well, show me one more piece of jewelry that you can look at and you can hear the sound of it. You know, the sound of it getting closed into the Walkman or the sound of it speeding up. Yeah, it's it's nostalgia, right? And that's exactly what it's geared towards. I, You know, Wade, I make things with the idea. I don't make them with the, what do people want or what would people buy? I could care less what people want or people would buy. That's not the reason why I do things. The reason why I do things is because it's like, what would I want? Well. And so that's what I basically, my mindset of going in, in with engraving or making something. Uh, I spent years making stuff for other people. I spent years engraving stuff for other people. Now I engrave stuff for myself. I do it how I would want it to be done. Or I make things that I would want. And they tend to resonate with people. And so, you yeah. know. Doing doing things your own way is its own reward, isn't it? Yeah, I, I just got no interest in, you know, hey, you're interested in doing this, making this. It's like, no, I, I don't. <laughs> That's something that you would want to make. You know, I'm not trying to make things to sell to make money. I'm trying to basically get my rocks off being creative. You know, and I've learned over time. They'll Did sell you ever anyways. have an awful job when you were a kid? You know, in the 20s or so? Well, I mean, I'm sure I had lots of awful. I mean, every job was awful when you're young. I, mean, <laughs> I, just, I just wonder if that's where, I, you know, where your ideas for your future came from. Well, I think that there's a lot of punk rock <laughs> in me where I'm not interested in doing things the right way or for society. You know, I'm rebellious by nature. And I've always liked basically, you know, with my guitar picks, for example, those, those were kind of a launching pad for myself because those were what people started to see uh, something different, you know, as far as engraving goes and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, I made guitar picks. Why? Why would I make guitar picks? Well, because I was a guitar player. I mean, that's where my roots lie. I'm, I'm a guitar player. What else am I going to make? You know, I remember one of my knife maker friends. Kurt and Julie Warinsky. I don't know if you know I Julie do. Warinsky. Her husband, Kurt, they, they lived in the same town, St. George, Utah, Southern Utah. And Kurt used to come by my shop, you know, every once in a while. And one time he was in there and he's like, you know, Jeff, you should really focus on just engraving knives because I was doing a lot of guitar picks at the time. And I was like, yeah, I hear you. You know, that's, that's where, you know, the engraving kind of is being done right now on guns and knives. But I thought, you know, I was like, screw you. I I want to do what I want to do. And because I did what I wanted to do, you know, those, those are what caught people's eyes back in the day and gave me an opportunity to do bigger and better things. I, yeah, I never really stepped all the way into the knife world. I love knives. Don't get me wrong. They're cool and they're great and they're fun. But I always felt like it wasn't completely me. Um. And guns as well. I know that you know you're a big fan of engraved firearms, and you're a gun engraver, and you you know that's where your passion lies. For me, it wasn't so much in that arena. I, I did things that I wanted to do, and so the guitar picks were one thing that was like, this is a cool little canvas. I can easily make them myself, and I'm a guitar player. Um, and you know, nowadays you see everybody making guitar picks. Like, you know, people make them here and there. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm the first one to make one or anything like that, but it's kind of a trendy thing to engrave. Well, uh, it, yours is probably the first one I ever saw, and uh, I've made quite a few of them. And it's for the same reason you just said. It's it's something you can make by yourself. The, the space isn't large enough for you to really get in trouble uh, monetarily. Anything you engrave on there is not going to take more than a day or two. And so right. I think it's actually the perfect way in to making custom pieces. You know, you can make it make it into a pendant uh, or sell it as a as a guitar pick. So yeah, I don't know. And you're a guitar player, uh, so you know, it makes barely, a lot of sense. Barely. <laughs> uh, don't don't ask my wife or my daughter about my guitar playing ability. Well, uh, I've I've called my my. You know, chops have kind of fallen through the cracks as of late as well. well so. I didn't even get into it until COVID came around. So it, it, it was one of these things where I'd always wanted to 
to have a guitar, but I was afraid to look like a poser, you know, and have a have a nice guitar, and I didn't know how to play it, and so <laughs> I always put off getting one, and then finally taught myself a little bit, and it's just enough to be entertaining. Yeah. So. Well, it's fun, you know. I will say that I wish I had more time for all that stuff, you yeah. know, but just fairly busy. Yes, you point. are, and uh, I got to tell you. I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. I know you're a busy person. I know that you took time away from playing with your little kids. And uh, I'm not going to keep you much longer. Is there anything else you want to uh, put out there in the world? Oh, no. Just, um, you know, thank you for the opportunity. It was fun chatting with you. It's great. Hopefully it'll get a little bit of attention or traction and whatnot. And people can get something out of it, you know. I'm, uh, I'm just, you know, one of these people that's just super uh, grateful to be doing what I love to do, you know, ultimately uh, it's rare, you know, that you get to basically make a living with something that you absolutely love to do. And I almost feel like, you know, I was, uh, the stars aligned for me. I was, this is my destiny. I was meant to do it. The place you need to be is where you're getting the things done that you know you should be doing. If that makes sense, that's the place you need to be. And I find myself in that place, you know, basically every day. Well, that's it for this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you get something from it. I think it was enlightening in a few ways. As always, I want to thank you for listening, taking the time to support me in my endeavor. I want to thank again Marius Mellaby for my wonderful music. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please do that wherever you listen. If you're not following along with us on Instagram, please come see us at The Hand Engraving Podcast on Instagram. I hope wherever you are, you're staying cool in this burning hot summer. I will see you next time. Mm